Welcome to Hauser Community Church Online. Let's join Pastor as the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and unpacks the Word of God for us. After the message, we'll tell you how to contact us. And the rest of you, if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Acts 20. Remember, I want you in the Word with me. Uh, I want you looking at the Word so that you see what I'm telling you is straight from the Word. Good morning, church. It's good to be up here with you. Amen. A few years ago, I went and visited uh, a lady who had broken her femur. And while she was in the hospital recovering, uh, her husband started to decline in his health. They brought him, thankfully, they were able to arrange to bring him into the room for the last couple of days in his life. Uh, They were able to spend that time together uh, until he passed. And and as I came to visit this saint, um, they hadn't yet taken his body. So um, I seated myself in between her deceased husband and her and and as a young pastor, I wasn't sure what to do. Um, <clears throat> this was like a chaos that I hadn't experienced yet, and uh, a stressful time. And all I knew how to do, the only way to bring comfort was to pray and read Scripture. That's all I had uh, in that moment. But after I prayed and after I read Scripture, um, she just started to recall God's faithfulness. She started to recall his faithfulness in her marriage, in their ministry. She started rejoicing at the truths of Christ, uh, the, the sure hope that she had in, in life and death and resurrection and the ascension. And that time of sorrow turned into a time of worship. And it reminded me a lot of Job. <clears throat> when Job, he receives all of this chaos in his life, and he's grieving, and he's hurting. Uh, He arose, and he tore his robes, and he shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and he worshiped. He said, naked I come from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It reminded me of of Habakkuk, everyone's favorite book in here, I'm certain. Uh, There's chaos going around. The the world seems like it's falling down around Habakkuk. And he says, how long, Lord, are you going to wait around and not do anything? And the Lord straightens him out in three chapters. And at the end, Habakkuk prays this prayer, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive has failed and the fields yield no food. The flock is cut off from the fold and there will be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You see, I went into that room to encourage the saint and left Encouraged. I was the one that was encouraged because this saint who was in excruciating pain, both physically um, and emotionally, set her eyes on Jesus Christ. And we need to stop and we have to ask ourselves where is my mind in trials? 
Where is my mind? How do I respond? The, the basic or the, the common human condition is to think, poor me. Poor me. Or to fight, retaliate, gossip, or grumble. Those are the things that we resort to more often than not. And those knee-jerk reactions, what they do for us is, and they start turning us and pushing us toward things that comfort us in something other than Jesus. So we start finding comfort in the bottom of a bottle or the arms of a lover or in a questionable website. Or we try to find comfort in a a bag of chips or a carton of ice cream. Or we try to find comfort in retaliation and gossip so we can tear others down and build ourselves up. But think about how Christ responds in his sufferings. He humbles himself, he glorifies the Father, he serves humanity, and encourages his disciples. We need to grow in our understanding that trials and suffering and persecution are wonderful opportunities for us to glorify God and encourage others. Not ourselves. We, we don't turn inward. We turn out, upward and outward. So we're going to answer two questions from the text this morning. First, how should I think in or after trials? And secondly, how do I encourage others in their suffering? So we're going to start with the right mindset. How do we have the right mindset in trials? In your suffering and in your trials, where is it that your mind goes immediately? Paul, we come to this text, we see he up to this point has been attacked from every angle. We think we have it bad. Paul has, he's been drug out of town twice because he was stoned and left for dead. He experienced a citywide uprising we saw last, last week. For two years, he's been pouring into this ministry, and the whole city turns on him in a moment. He gets to a different location. We see in verse 3, he spends three months there, and a plot, another plot, it should say, is made against him by the Jews. He summarizes his his sufferings in 2 Corinthians for us. Uh, So we can always come here if we think, uh, I stumped my toe today, I have it pretty bad. Uh, Five times, Paul says, I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. So 40 was a death sentence. They graciously gave him 39. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was left adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, though through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches." And he's not saying, poor me. He's saying in all of that, we come to our text today and we see how Paul responds. Look at the text, verses 1 and 2. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples 
And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and he had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. He doesn't spend a lot of time grumbling and complaining, or at least Luke doesn't um, write it down if he does. But even if he does, he sets his eyes on Christ. He accepts that suffering comes because it's just part of living for Jesus in the kingdom. Jesus says, we're going to suffer. If you follow me, you're going to suffer. If they hate you, they hated me first. I understand what you're going through. And then Paul uses that suffering and the comfort that he receives Not in everyone else, but he does receive comfort, but in Jesus Christ to fuel his compassion and his encouragement of others. As as Bill read this morning in the call to worship, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You think, man, he says comfort a lot, because he's making a point. (laughs) He's repeating it. He's making a point. That is the purpose. We're comforted by God, not so we can hold on to it and say, oh, I love my comfort, but so we can pour it out on others around us. So how do we develop that mind? First, you'll love this. Don't think too highly about yourself. In Acts 20, verse 24, we'll get to that next week, but I do want to see that this is, he's talking about his suffering in verses 23, and then he comes and says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. Now, it doesn't mean, he's not saying I'm useless and worthless uh, he, he knows he's created in the image of God. You, if you're, you, it doesn't matter. You are created in the image of God. And as a Christian, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are positionally in Jesus Christ. But this, I don't count my life as anything or of any value. What he is saying is, I'm dying to self and living for Christ. That your life no longer is precious to the point that you hold on to your plans. You, do not, you no longer hold on to that. You accept what comes your way by God's sovereign hand. That he is allowing it to come your way. So in that, your mindset changes. And when trials come, you are determined to bring glory to God. Instead of fight for your rights or get your way in life. You no, long, you no longer think of yourself as above suffering for the gospel. But to um, suffer for Jesus as one who will suffer or even die for Jesus' name so that it's exalted. So a part of suffering... It's not only exalting God, it's, it's humbling yourself before others. Paul tells us this in Philippians 2. If you want to see the mind that you should have, read Philippians 2, 1 through 10. But he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. 
but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Paul understood the desire to set the record straight. He just was kicked out of Ephesus, or at least out of the city, and they were rioting and they were, they were chanting so that he could not even come into the city and proclaim Christ. So he gets the desire to want to go out and set the record straight, but he submits to the Lord. He does not do that in that moment. Instead, he waits until the dust settles. When trials come your way, instead of being reactionary, instead of in the heat of the moment saying the thing that you know you should not say, humble yourself by trying, not trying to justify yourself. Resist being defensive. I am the king of defending myself. Just ask my wife. If something is brought against me, I could tell you 15 reasons why it's your fault. But that is not how we should be. After the uproar ceases, wait for the dust to settle. Because here's what happens. If you do not humble yourself before God and others, your bad day, your suffering, your trial is going to spill out on everyone else. So they will either receive your wrath because they're your outlet or they're going to become co-conspirators, co-conspirators with you in complaining. And neither one of those are helpful. So once you humble yourself before God, and once you humble yourself before others, then you can act in a way that will glorify God. So look again at Acts 20, verse 24. I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. I'm going to humble myself before God and others, if only... I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So he's not saying be a martyr and take, I'm just going to humble myself and let everyone run over me. No, the point of this is I'm going to exalt Christ. I'm going to humble myself for the point of, for the purpose of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ in every single situation. We're called to prioritize the mission of Jesus. This, there is so much in life that is seeking to knock you off that calling. Everything, not everything, but a lot of stuff is, is coming against you so that you will not glorify God, so that you will exalt yourself above others and above God. But believer, in, if your mind is set on the glory of God in all circumstances then you will see all circumstances, not as hindrances, but opportunities to tell of the gospel of the grace of God. So when trials come, when they come, stop and take time. Allow the dust to settle and ask, how can I glorify God in this? How can I tell of the gospel of the grace of God first to myself? I need to remember who he is and what he's doing and then to others. How can I remind others who he is and what he's doing? How can I fulfill the calling placed on my life by Jesus Christ? And then when our focus and our hopes are set right in trials, then we are ready to encourage others. We're going to encourage others in their trials. So look at verse 1. Now we can start with the passage. You ready? Ready? 
after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. So Paul, he first encourages when it's needed, after the uproar ceased. He knows what's going on in the heart and in the head of believers in that city. Because it's going on in his own heart, in his own head. He has been part of persecution his whole ministry. He gets it. He was a persecutor. So he understands what's going on. And he understood as a mature believer how to turn to Jesus in these difficult times. He had been through this. He he knew, I need to encourage the saints. I need to encourage the lowly. How often in your life do you go through a trial, do you go through an experience, and then you experience the grace of God, and then you run into people over and over and over who are experiencing the same troubles that you have just been delivered from by the grace of God? I remember early on in our marriage, Nikki and I, we hit a rough patch, and if it wasn't For the grace of God, we would not be married today. But since then, we have run into couple after couple after couple facing struggles in their marriage. And it's because of seeing God's grace and his mercy in our own marriage that we are able to encourage others in their marriage. We're able to point them to Christ. We're able to invest in them. So don't waste your suffering. You're going to suffer. Learn from it. And the Lord is going to pull you through it. He's going to comfort you. And then you can use that comfort to comfort others. Paul also encourages, not just when the timing is right, after the uproar ceased, but he pursues discipleship. He pursues his disciples. He pursues them to encourage them. So verse 1, Paul sent for the disciples. In attempting to encourage others, we often make at least two mistakes, or one of two mistakes. One, we tell them, the person that's discouraged or dealing with trouble, let me know what I can do to help you. Sounds really noble. It sounds wonderful. I've said it often. I still say it and think, stop saying that. It's, it's not often helpful. Why? It's not helpful because you're asking someone in crisis to stop and give you direction in how to help them in their crisis. If someone's in crisis, just go to them. Pray with them, encourage them with scripture, uh, take them cookies. If they don't eat gluten, take them vegetables, whatever. Just don't make the mistake of putting all of the weight on the person who's struggling to help you help them. This is not Jerry Maguire, help me help you kind of situation. We should just go and do it. The second mistake we often make is thinking, well, if they needed help, they, would have, they should have said something to me. Most people will not say something. They will suffer in silence. But we know we can go to them. We can send cards. We can send a text. We can 
I don't know, can you send a tweet? I'm not even sure. Um, you can send a picture on Instagram or a reel or buy them a bouquet of flowers or write them a letter if you still know how to use your handwriting. Something. Just encourage them. Church, pursue the discouraged. That's what we should be doing, pointing each other to Jesus Christ. Paul also encourages them, and this is something we desperately need to hear, he encourages them by leaving. After the uproar seized, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. This is where a lot of us need to understand we're not the answer. We are not the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. We, we, when we serve others, we, we are to seek to encourage them, uh, but we have to be careful to not exalt ourselves or be exalted into the place of Jesus Christ. We're to get out of the way. Remind them, this is the one you need to be pursuing. This is the one you need to be looking to. He is the one that true comfort comes from. Because what's going to happen if you become the one they are looking to, to run to every time they're in trouble, every time they need to dry their tears, uh, you're the one that gives them a motivational speech, what's going to happen is you're going to mess up one day, and it's going to crush them. But if you're constantly pointing to Jesus, it's not me, it's Jesus you need to be looking to, you can encourage with that, they will run to him instead. And that's what we need. So instead of being the answer, you encourage with your presence and the power of Christ. Weep with those who are weeping. Sit in silence with those who do not want to talk. Listen to those who do want to. And when the time to disciple comes, when the time to correct thinking comes, you point them to Scripture. You comfort with the promises of God. This is what God has promised you. You pray the very words of Scripture over them and with them, teaching them to do the same thing. This is discipleship just through suffering. In doing this, you're encouraging with the word of God. You're pointing to the sovereign God who can actually do something about their situation. You might momentarily be able to help, but he's the one that can solve their problems for all eternity. He's the one we need to point to. So not only do we encourage with our presence, we encourage others through partnership. Look at verse three. Paul spent three months there then a plot was made against him by the Jews, and he was about to set sail to Syria, and he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter the Berean, the son of Phyrus, accompanied him in the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius from Derby and Timothy. Thank you, Timothy, for having an easy name to pronounce. The Asians, Tachachus, that's where we're going to go with. Oh, I told Randy before, just say it with confidence. He did well. And Trophimus. <laughs> I've totally derailed you from even hearing the scripture there. And we jump to 13. And we see that he goes with Paul aboard there. And they, they travel together to all these different places. And he's not alone. That's the point here. 
Ministry was never intended to be done alone. Notice how Paul is, he always seems to have someone with him. He's always finding someone or working with someone. Take a look at the Lord. He finds 12 men to minister with. We're created as relational beings. The only thing that God saw in all of creation that was not good, as he's saying, that's good, that's good, that's good, was that Adam was alone. The one thing that Adam noticed as he's naming all of creatures that he's missing is someone to help him. God creates Eve and they rule the kingdom. They're called to rule the kingdom together. We are called to do ministry together, not there's no lone rangers. We see in Ecclesiastes, uh, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. We're meant to be together. Just notice the model of the church. So we've seen creation. We're created that way. Uh, Paul is that way. Jesus is that way. The New Testament church is given elders. There's no single pastor set up as the the high point or the, the ruling leader of a church. The work of ministry is distributed with the deacons. The church is pictured as a body working together, each playing their part. So everyone needs to be doing what they're called to do. No part of the kingdom is a single role, each participating together. But when we go against this model, when we seek to do life on our own, when we seek to do ministry on our own or fight troubles on our own, we inevitably become discouraged because we're operating apart from how we are created. But when we work together, When we're there for one another, in the good and in the bad, pointing out one another's blind spots, it's something we all love to do. Lifting one another up when we're weak, reminding one another of the gospel, what it looks like, what it says, what it promises, rejoicing and weeping together in the stresses and the victories of life. And as we partner together, we're spreading the gospel in a culture, in a world that's counter-gospel. And we're encouraging one another to continue on, to press on toward the goal, to keep the faith. This is the message Paul communicates in most of his letters. How much he appreciates the partnership in ministry with those helping him. How encouraged he is because they're partnering with him in the ministry. I don't know how, I know you don't know how much it warms my heart to see you physically in church, to see you participating and us participating together in worship. It is huge to see that. So many churches close their doors. So many missionaries go home. So many pastors burn out. So many church members move on because there's this huge lack of participation and it becomes very discouraging. So are you participating? Do you understand that your participation is is much more than you filling a hole or a need or a volunteer slot? 
It's an encouragement to those around you. And I think this partnership naturally flows out of uh, encouragement through fellowship. Look at verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. We need to first realize that this is a super diverse, ethnically diverse, culturally mixed missions team that Randy read for us and I stumbled through. They're from all over the place and they're operating together. This fellowship of believers uh, from different nations, backgrounds, cultures is this beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. That we are working together across cultural boundaries, ethnic boundaries, uh, financial boundaries, social boundaries, all of these for one goal, to glorify God and build his kingdom. And this fellowship takes place very simply over a meal. Fellowship with one another doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be um, something we plan specifically. It's just a meal and talking and learning about one another. You will give encouragement and you will, you will be given encouragement when you fellowship with the body of believers. You'll be able to share how God is faithfully moving in your life and you can hear how God is faithfully moving in others. There are so many amazing stories of God's faithfulness right here in this room. Many. I, I challenge you today to take someone out to lunch, have someone over for lunch sometime this week, someone that you've never met before, and be encouraged through fellowship. And this fellowship was not only over a meal, it was over the meal, the Lord's Supper. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The Lord's Supper is fellowship with Jesus, but it's also fellowship together with those in his body. In that fellowship, we're remembering that we are united in Christ. And when we start to remember we're united in Christ, the divisions among us and in the body of Christ outside in other churches starts to dissolve and we start to disciple and be discipled. Encouraging and being encouraged, loving and being loved. And while we are encouraging through simple fellowship, we are called and we're able to dig deeper into encouragement by encouraging others, by telling of God's faithfulness. Look at the text again. He and, actually, verse 7, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Don't worry, this one will end way before midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting in the window, sank into a deep sleep, and Paul talked still longer. We'll stop there. We'll get to Eutychus, don't worry. But Paul is just excited about preaching the gospel. 
He's excited about telling these new believers in Troas the, the faithfulness of God and what God has done and how he is, he is uniting the Jews and the Gentiles and how he is saving his people and how his kingdom is growing. And it, it, yeah, he speaks a little long because he gets a little excited. Everywhere he went, though, he preached and reasoned, and he wanted people to understand the good news of Jesus Christ. He was not ashamed of the gospel, he tells us in Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You don't have to be an evangelist or a pastor to tell of God's faithfulness. You can encourage with the gospel. Tell the story of redemption. I can imagine Paul just as he's proclaiming the beauty of God's majesty here. He's, he's saying things like he does in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Or something beautiful like Colossians 1, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul's just proclaiming the gospel to them. And you can do that. Church, you can encourage one another. Uh, you can preach these words. You can read them to each other. To the one who's stuck in sin, you can turn them to the Lord and say, He has paid for your sin on the cross and He is redeeming you and cleansing you from that. You can encourage the one who's burnt out to rest in the Lord. He is the true rest. You can encourage the one who is persecuted by reminding them that the, Jesus was the suffering servant. He understands every suffering, every temptation we can ever go through. We can even encourage the one who's under God's discipline by pointing them to Hebrews 12. That's not Hebrews 12. That is. For the moment, all discipline, it seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Practice speaking the gospel to one another, church. Constantly reminding one another who you are in Christ. And apart from speaking God's faithfulness to one another, encourage by celebrating God's faithfulness. We see in verse 6 here, but he sailed away to Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. We don't want to pass that up. Why is that important? The days of unleavened bread, we're not celebrating that anymore. It's part of the Passover celebration. But it's this beautiful reminder for Paul as a Jew that God has rescued his people out of Egypt and out of slavery. It's important that Paul as a Jew is still celebrating this. 
that the God of the Old Testament is, is the God of the New Testament. That this beautiful story that we see in Exodus is still the beautiful story that we see today. He just now had a greater understanding of this better deliverance from slavery. That not just physical slavery, but spiritual slavery. And to celebrate that with believers is celebrating God's master plan of redemption. It is encouraging one another with the truth. And then in verse 16, we see Paul had decided to set sail for Ephesus or past Ephesus so that he might not uh, have to spend time in Asia for he wanted, he was hastening to be in Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is also part of Passover. It's 50 days after, seven weeks after Passover. It's known as the Feast of Weeks. And this is a time that Israelite farmers, they would take, they would start their journey toward Jerusalem. They would take their first fruit offerings from the harvest and they would take it and offer it to the Lord. And Paul is desiring to get back to Jerusalem to celebrate this, this Pentecost. One, because he's a Jew, it's his heritage. But now Pentecost has this whole new meaning after Acts 2. This time the pilgrimage was not to present first fruits of the harvest of wheat or olives or whatever it was. It was to celebrate the first fruits of Christianity. That God was saving his people. That he was doing what he promised to do. This is the time that the Holy Spirit came and he empowers believers to come to Jerusalem. And then he doesn't, he doesn't empower them to come back every year. He says, go out now. You you no longer have to come back here. Now you go to the ends of the earth and produce fruit for the kingdom. Just as Jeremy said in his presentation today, if that seed is not planted, it will not grow. But if it is, it produces much fruit. And we may not have the days of unleavened bread. We can celebrate Pentecost. We can celebrate Christmas and Easter the Lord's Supper and baptism. These are all ways. These are not just empty checkpoints along the the Christian life that we, oh, well, we do that because it's, you know, it's December 25th and Jesus was born in September, so obviously we would do it in December. Everybody's going to be like, what did he just say? Google that later. These are times of celebration of what God has done. Christmas, we celebrate that he became flesh, that he suffered, that he became the suffering servant. In the Lord's Supper, we celebrate that he died for our forgiveness, that he's cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Easter, we celebrate that he was raised from the dead on the third day, and he secured our resurrection into eternity, that he defeated sin and death. On Pentecost, we celebrate that he gave us his Holy Spirit, not just randomly, but he, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. In your baptism, he, he is telling you, you are identified with Jesus Christ. You are no longer this old person, but you're new. You're a new life. 
And we're celebrating as a church all of these things. And we're celebrating the faithfulness of God. And it's reminding us who we are. We're his. We're children of the king. We're heirs to the throne. We're forgiven. We're loved. We're priests to the father. We're, we're ambassadors of the Lord. We're righteous. If these celebrations do not encourage you as a Christian, you don't understand what they are. Or they've become so familiar, you don't care anymore. And finally, we can get to Eutychus. And we can encourage others with God's power over death. Paul's preaching, he gets a little excited. He runs a little long. It's a little warm. Sermon goes on for hours. Some of you are thinking like this one. The torches are starting. The lights that we see here or the, um, excuse me, where is it? The lamps. They didn't have LEDs. They were torches. So this room in this house is getting hot. And the bodies in there, they're crammed in there to hear Paul. It's getting stuffy. The oxygen is starting to drop and people are yawning. And Eutychus, third floor, falls three stories to his death. And Paul quickly runs over and, and raises him. He says, don't worry. His life is still in him. And we have to say, what is going on here? Why is this here? It's sandwiched in a weird place. And we see the raising of the dead four other times, four other very important instances uh, other than the resurrection of Christ. We see it with Elijah. We see it with Elisha. So Elijah in 1 Kings, Elisha in 2 Kings. We see it with Jesus and Luke. Uh, he raises the widow's son. And in John, he raises Lazarus. And then we see it with Peter. And every time we see this, What's going on is God is adding to his message. He's, he's telling the story. He's expanding the, the, what has been proclaimed. And he is, he is showing the people that this is my messenger that you need to listen to. He's doing miraculous things. He's showing the kingdom of God is near. And now this isn't normative. and It doesn't, it, it doesn't happen. I've... Not once had to do that, as long and boring as I've been at times. But it does point to a greater truth, that God has power over death. It does not stop him from doing what he needs to do. God's power over death points to a greater hope. Eutychus dies again eventually. But in Christ, his death has been removed forever. And the story begs another question. Have you fallen asleep? Some fall asleep in church for various reasons, and, and I've stopped even looking. I once, I got spare time. You guys are stuck anyways. Uh, I was preaching when I was early on, and uh, there's a guy snoozing in the back, and I thought, that's so rude. I can't believe. And then I, after the service, went and chatted with him, and he could recite my sermon better than I could. So I don't even, if you're in here snoozing, don't worry about it. Um, 
There's various reasons we do. Medication makes some of you sleepy, and I get it. You're, some of you, you're just so busy. Your work schedules, your home schedules are so crazy that you come in here and you sit down. It's the first time all week you've been able to relax, and you're out. We warm it up in here so you get comfortable, um, and you're out. I remember as a kid falling asleep and hitting my head. We had this old wooden pews, and boom. Um, so don't worry. I've been there. But what's more concerning is if you're in here with your eyes open and your soul is asleep. If you're here, uh, we're here worshiping the Lord God Almighty, <laughs> like the one who can raise the dead, who did raise the dead. And we oftentimes yawn about that. We worship a God who raises us from, from the death of sin, and we live like we're still dead in sin. And it's time for us to wake up. It's, if the power of the cross and the fellowship of the saints does not move you, if it does not encourage you, maybe you're spiritually asleep. And if you're spiritually asleep, you are no encouragement to anyone because what are you going to point to if you don't know Christ? Some of you are asleep today because you've never been awake. You have been spiritually dead your whole life. Some of you are asleep today because sin in your life has just put you into a spiritual slumber. Some of you are asleep because you're so familiar with the things of the church that it no longer impacts you. If any of those are true of you, I encourage you. We'll, a few of us will be standing in the back at those tables. If you wonder why we walk back there, it's to pray with you. We want to pray with you. If you just want to pray and find encouragement this morning, come and pray with us. We want to pray with you. But today is the day of the greatest encouragement. Salvation in Jesus Christ is here. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are so humbled and amazed by who you are. God, we thank you that you are the God of encouragement, not a motivational speaker. You're the one who brings true encouragement, everlasting encouragement, you're the one that gives us hope when there's no hope in anything else. You're the one that gives us strength. You're the one that cleanses us from sin. You're the one that reminds us of who you are and who you say we are. God, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Thank you for joining us at Hauser Community Church Online. Check back next week for the next unpacking of the Word of God. Please feel free to contact us with any questions you might have about the message or for pastor at area code 541-756-2591 or email us at pray at hauserchurch.org. Again, that's P-R-A-Y at H-A-U-S-E-R-C-H-U-R-C-H dot O-R-G. Our address is 69411 Wildwood Road, North Bend, Oregon. 
1-800-926-9459. Remember, if you're seeking the truth, it will set you free. And that truth is Jesus Christ.